0: It's, it's working now. Testing one, two. I think we're good. Are we good on the recording? Or do you mean to delay a little longer? Are we good? Okay. All righty. So, yeah, chapters one through four today. Um, so, I'm really excited. Really excited about this. I did want to mention a couple things. The first one is that these recordings are going up on the Bell Shoals Women podcast. And so you can, any podcast app, whether it's your Apple podcast or if you're a Google like smartphone person, um, Spotify, you should be able to just type in the search box, Bell Shoals Women, and the podcast will come up. It's like a pretty green color. It has a white headphones, and it says Bell Shoals Women. That's a little picture you'll see. Click on that, and um, Amy's putting those up each week. So if you miss a a lesson, or we cover a lot of ground, so you might want to go back and be like, oh, I didn't really get that part, or I I couldn't take notes fast enough, and you want to go back and listen again, um, those are on there. All right? So that's one thing I wanted to tell you about. Also, um, within the workbook, I don't remember if I mentioned, I don't think I mentioned this last week, there are listening guides that go with messages that I taught the first time I taught this. So they're just blanks, and there's no way to know what goes in those blanks. You can guess if you want to do that, but I am not teaching those messages. So you can throw those pages out, do whatever you want with them, um, treat it like a Mad Lib. I don't know, whatever you want to do with them, but we are not going to be using those. I have new listening sheets for you. Um, Today's has a nice little circle and some squares and a bunch of fun stuff. So we're going to go through that. So make sure you have that in front of you, and let's go ahead and get started. You guys ready? All right. About 20 years ago-ish, I got really, really, really serious about drinking water. So I started carrying a water bottle everywhere I went. So I was trying to think back, how long have I been carrying a water bottle everywhere I go? About 20 years, probably. I think, like, toward the end of college. And um, this sounds like a, a wonderful habit, and it is a wonderful habit. However, there is a downside. Some of you know. You're shaking your head. And that downside is that I have become so accustomed to constantly drinking water from my water bottle that if I accidentally forget to bring my bottle, I experience legitimate anxiety symptoms. Uh, I may have just drunk a huge glass of water before leaving the house, but the second I realize I don't have my bottle, my heart rate starts to increase a little bit, my mouth starts to feel dry and parched, I start to feel like I've never drank anything in my entire life, and no matter what I have going on, there are going to be 15 things going on that are all very important. My brain can only think of one thing, and that is getting my hands on some water, right? So now you know your Bible teacher has an addiction to water. <laughs> I need to have my water bottle. Whether or not you can relate to my obsession, you've no doubt experienced some kind of situation that has uh, reminded you how essential water is to life. You guys know me, I do not like to be hungry, but being thirsty is way worse, right? Some of you as I speak are thinking to yourself, I really wish I had a glass of water right now. Meg, did you just go get a glass of water? Yeah. I mean, even as I'm talking, you're getting thirsty and you're like, you're feeling insecure. And and you are welcome at any time during this message to get up and and go get some water, because we're going to be talking a lot about water today, and it's going to make you thirsty. Well, in light of the essential nature of water, it should not surprise us that it has a prominent place in the biblical story. In fact, the entire Bible opens with the Spirit hovering over the water's and the dark, chaotic waters, subdued by the Spirit, leads to life and new creation and Eden. And then in chapter 2 of Genesis, it's kind of a, 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 the same story told from a, a different vantage point, a different perspective. Uh, In that chapter, there's a spring. It's often translated a mist rose from the ground, but it's uh, the same word as a spring rising from the ground to water the earth. And God's breath or spirit, it's ruach in the Hebrew, same word for breath, spirit, wind, all the same word. All right, so God's breath is breathed into the earth to form man, and a garden begins to grow. And what was once just a spring becomes a river. That divides into four more rivers that sends God's life-giving presence flowing out into the world he has made. So that's why you have that circle in the middle of your listening guide. Genesis 1 and 2. Water plus spirit equals life. That is the picture that we get From the very beginning, so it should come as no surprise that wells and springs and rivers show up a lot as you read the Bible, both in a physical, literal sense, but also metaphors, water metaphors, all over the place. I have some boxes surrounding that circle for four of them. I could have 44 of them. All right, there are so many um, examples throughout Scripture where water shows up. I'm just going to take you to a couple of places where we see this theme of water plus spirit equals life. All right, the first one I want to take you to, you're welcome to listen, or you can turn there, is Isaiah chapter 43. For those of you that uh, studied Isaiah with us last semester, we're going to see so many connections between Isaiah and, and the book of John. All right, so Isaiah 43, I'm going to start in verse 16. It says, This is what the Lord says, who makes a way in the sea and a path through raging water, who brings out the chariot and horse, the army and the mighty one together. They lie down. Do they do not rise again? They are extinguished, put out like a wick. Talking there about the Egyptians, right? The Israelites walked through The Red Sea on dry ground, and then it came up over the Egyptians. Verse 18, "'Do not remember the past events. Pay no attention to the things of old. Look, I am about to do something new. Even now is it coming. It is coming. Do you not see it? Indeed, I will make a way in the wilderness, rivers in the desert.'" Wild animals, jackals, and ostriches will honor me because I provide water in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. The people I formed for myself will declare my praise. So looking back to the Exodus, how God led them through water, God destroyed their enemies with water, and then God continually provided water for them in the wilderness. Now what is this new Thing that God is going to do. Well, look at chapter Isaiah 44, just a few verses down. I'm going to start in verse 1. It says, and now listen, Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. This is the word of the Lord, your maker, the one who formed you from the womb. He will help you. Do not fear, Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, who I have chosen. Listen to this. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground, I will pour out my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. And look at this. There's a garden's going to grow. They will sprout among the grass like poplars by flowing streams. And this one will say, "I am the Lord's." Another will use the name of Jacob still another will write on his hand the Lord's and take on the name of Israel. So people who had not formally taken on the name of Israel, will now, because of the outpouring of God's Spirit, take on the name of Israel and say, I am the Lord's. All right, one more Old Testament passage, and then we're going to get to John. Um, we're going to move to Ezekiel chapter 36, good old book of Ezekiel, of which I understand maybe 5% of it. <laughs> it's a tough one. Um, Ezekiel 36. This one's, this is, this is a really cool connection though. Um, so just a little background. Israel has been rebellious. God has sent them away into captivity. So it's a story that we're very familiar with, those of us that study the book of Isaiah. Uh, but here in this part of Ezekiel, we find a beautiful promise of full restoration. So the people are going to return. God's going to restore the land and he's looking way ahead. So Ezekiel chapter 36. Um, the entire chapter is beautiful, but I'm going to pick up in verse nine. It says, "Look, he's speaking to, to Israel. I am on your side. I will turn toward you, and will be to, and and you will be tilled and sown. So already we've got some garden language happening. I will fill you with people, and the whole house of Israel in its entirety. The cities will be inhabited, and the ruins rebuilt. I will fill you with people and animals." And they will increase and be fruitful. All of our Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2 radars should be going off at this point. All right? I will make you inhabited as you once were and make you better off than you were before. All right, so filling, fruitfulness, all that stuff going on. Skip down to verse 24. It says, for I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and will bring you to your own land. I will also sprinkle clean what on you? Water. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my... Spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave your ancestors. You will be my people. I will be your God. I will save you from your uncleanness. I will summon the grain and make it plentiful, and I will not bring famine on you. I will also make the fruit of the trees and the produce of the field plentiful so that you will no longer experience reproach from the nations and then look at verse 35 just in case we weren't catching on it says they will say this land that was desolate has become like the garden of Eden so we've got water and spirit and now we have a new Eden. Are you seeing the connections? All right now ch- uh, chapter 37 uh, is where we have the valley full of dry bones, which represents Israel and her current state of rebellion. For those of you who are familiar with this vision, what happens to those dry bones? They come alive, right? They, they come alive. Um, and, and, and we see again here, look at verse 14. Yeah, verse 14. This is after the, the dry bones have become like people again. He says, I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land then you will know that I am the Lord I have spoken and I will do it so here again we see water plus spirit plus life is leading to new creation all right later in chapter 47 skip over just a few pages of Ezekiel chapter 47 So this is a really interesting vision. Um, Ezekiel sees a vision of the temple uh, that is gushing water. And those water that is gushing from the temple becomes a river. All right, now, again, a river has a very prominent place in Genesis 2. We have another river gushing from a temple. Uh, look at verse 9 of chapter 47. It says, Every kind of living creature that swarms that swarms will live where this river flows. So it is a river that brings life. And then skip down to verse 12. It says all kinds of trees providing food will grow along both banks of this river. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. Each month they will bear fresh fruit because the water comes from the sanctuary or the temple. Their fruit will be used for eating, and their leaves for healing. All right. One more place I want to take you before we hit up John. Go ahead and turn all the way to the end, Revelation chapter 21. If you haven't noticed, chasing down themes throughout the whole Bible has become my new favorite thing to do. (laughs) I didn't do that 10 years ago when I first, when I first taught the book of John. Um, this is super fun. All right, so Revelation 21, I'm going to read a little part of verse 1 just to give you context. It says, then I saw the new heaven and the new earth. So this is the eternal state, the very end, which is the very beginning, actually. Um, and then skip down to verse 22 of chapter 21. It says, I did not see a temple in this new heaven and new earth because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb... Are its temple. Now skip down to chapter 22, verse 1. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. So you have no temple because the Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. And what is flowing from this new temple? A river. A river is flowing through, and it's down the middle. Of the city's main street, the tree of, li- tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. Hello, Ezekiel, right? The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. The Bible literally, I know, it literally begins and ends with living water. Water. Isn't that so cool? And you can trace the theme throughout the whole storyline. And so we need to keep all of these passages in mind as we study the book of John because water's a big theme in the book of John. And do you think John had these Old Testament references in mind as he wrote? Absolutely he did. Absolutely he did. Um, And, of course, many of his original audience would be really familiar with those texts. We typically are not. And so that's why I wanted to to, to make sure we we are aware of that theme that's going on. So here's my strategy today. Our main focus is going to be chapter four, all right, Samaritan Woman at the Well. Um, I'm going to start, however, in chapter one, and we're going to go really fast through chapters one through three, and I'm going to highlight certain things that set us up 4, chapter 4, all right, so everything that takes place in chapters 1, 2, and 3 is this beautiful setup for us to really be wowed by what takes place um, at the well in John chapter 4. So I'm going to read very fast, I am going to stop and explain very little, okay, Uh, but I want us to see how the narrative builds. On your listening guide, second half of that first page, um, I've kind of, I've given you the, the the chunks I'm going to look at, and I've, I've summarized what is important from that as it pertains to John chapter 4. All right? Are we all there? All right, well, let's, let's roll. Uh, we're going to start in John chapter 1, verse 29. Verse 29. Uh, John the Baptist, he's got a key. He's a, he's a main player, especially in the first uh, part of the gospel. And he is speaking, or this is about him. Chapter 1, verse 29 of the book of John. The next day, John, this is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is very important. That's going to come back around to us in John chapter 4. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I didn't know him. But I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it rested on him. And I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, so God revealed this to John, the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. All right, so you have John baptizing with water. You have Jesus, who also did baptizing. His Disciples did the baptizing, but with water. But it's not just a baptism with water. It's not just for purification. It's water and what? Water and the Holy Spirit. And if you are baptized with the baptism that Jesus gives... What we're going to see as the story unfolds is that you have new life. Water plus spirit equals life. All right? Let's uh, look at the conversation that Jesus has with Nathaniel. Skip down to chapter 1, verse 50. Chapter 1, verse 50. Uh, Nathaniel becomes one of Christ's uh, 12 disciples. Verse 50, Jesus responded to him, Do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Then Jesus said, truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. All right, let's talk about that right there. It's a Big deal. Jesus is referring to a dream that a guy named Jacob had recorded for us in Genesis 28. We're not going to turn there. You can just jot that down. Genesis 28. Now, Jacob is the guy that had the 12 sons that later become the 12 tribes of Israel. So pretty important dude, really important figure in Israel's history. Well, he has this dream about a stairway that goes from heaven to earth, and God's angels are going up and down on that stairway. And in this dream, God reconfirms the covenant that he had made with Jacob's dad, Abraham, um, he reconfirms it to Jacob. and when Jacob wakes up, he declares, "Surely the Lord is in this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So what Jesus is doing in this conversation with Nathaniel is stating that he is the stairway. He is the gate of heaven. He is the place where heaven and earth meet. Now, in a Jewish mindset, there was one really special place where heaven and earth overlapped. And that was the temple in Jerusalem. But that's about to change. It's no longer going to focus on the temple structure in Jerusalem, the place where heaven and earth overlap. The gate of heaven is now the person of Jesus Christ. All right, so, so things are, are, are shifting. And so that's a really big claim that Jesus is making there. All right, let's go to a wedding. John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his... Dis- just gets louder and louder. But he's, he's going to move on in a second. All right. Uh, Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Now, um, <laughs> it kind of sounds rude to us. You don't talk to your mama that way, right? As I tell my boys if they said that. Do not call me woman. All right? That's not how it was. That's not how it was. Uh, Jesus is not being rude. He, he is intentionally, he does this, you'll notice, throughout the narrative. He's distancing himself from the request so that it's clear to everyone around him that he is in full control of what he does and when he does it. He's driven not by human will. He is driven by his own will, which is one and the same with the Father's will. So you'll see him do this a few times in the narrative. He's like, somebody asks him to do something, and he's going to do it. But he's going to wait so that everybody knows he's in charge of of what he does. All right? So we have, um, okay, move on. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, Let's see. Verse 5. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. That is a word right there. Just do whatever Jesus tells you. That's one you can cling to. We can always apply. Verse 6. Now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. And so they filled them to the brim. And then he said to them, now, draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. And when the head waiter tasted the water, after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And he called the groom and he said to him, Everyone sets out the fine wine first, and then after the people are drunk, the inferior. And this statement right here is the interpretive lens for this whole whole miracle. But you have kept the fine wine until now, or you have saved the best for last. And Jesus did this. The first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. All right, so we've got pots full of water We have Jesus telling the servants to draw some of the water out, and what they find is way better than water. Set against the backdrop of a wedding, this is a stunning picture of the unexpected, extravagant abundance associated with the person and work of Jesus Christ. And throughout the Old Testament, Uh, wine and feasting are symbols of the fullness and flourishing that will come in the messianic age. We saw wine all over the book of Isaiah. Wine and parties and the fat meat, you know, cuts, like God brings out the Wagyu beef, you know, like, and and this is all, this is the the, the imagery that comes up when Isaiah is describing the the, the, the Messianic Age, and especially moving into the new heaven and the new earth. So, all that imagery is kind of converging here. If you want to reference um, Joel chapter 2, 28 through 32, um, and then moving into chapter 3, verse 1, and then 17 and 18, that whole passage combines spirit, water, wine, new life. It's like all right there in Joel 2 and 3. All right, next scene chapter 2 verse 13 the jewish passover was near that's important and so jesus went up to jerusalem a lot of the things in john take place in jerusalem that's one thing that makes it very different than the other gospels all right so in the temple he found people selling oxen sheep and doves he also found money changers sitting there after making a whip out of cords he drove everyone excuse me out of the temple With their sheep and oxen, he also poured out the money changers' coins, overturned the tables, and those who were selling doves, he said, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered uh, that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews replied to him, what sign will you show us for doing these things? In other words, who do you think you are? Like, what gives you the right and Jesus answered, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore, the Jews said, this temple took 46 years to build, and you will raise it up in three days? Uh, by the way, when John wrote this gospel, the temple had been destroyed. He probably wrote it between 90 um, and 100 B.C. The temple was destroyed, I think, it's 70, uh, not B.C., A.D. I'm sorry, after, after, Christ. so 70. So it had already been destroyed to John's original audience is reading this in light of that. Uh, Verse 21 is really huge. Again, it's the interpretive lens. But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement that Jesus had, had made. All right, so at this point, Jesus has already associated himself with the stairway in Jacob's dream. He has already basically said, I am the house of God. I am the gate of heaven, I am the place where heaven and earth overlap. And so here, that is followed up with this explicit statement that the resurrected Jesus is the new temple. And what that is going to come into play big time in the conversation that Jesus has with the woman at the well. All right? Moving on to Jesus and Nicodemus. Chapter 3, verse 1, there was a man, very important, he was from the Pharisees, named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. So if you were wanting to highlight the antagonist in the Gospel of John, it is the Pharisees. It's the rulers of the Jews, all right, of which this man is a part. Uh, this man came to him at night, so he's kind of coming incognito. Also, John is probably playing on his light and darkness theme that he's weaving through. Um, And Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs unless God were with him. All right, so nothing Nicodemus says there in verse 2 is wrong. It's just sorely incomplete, which is why this conversation continues. All right, look at verse 3. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. All right, interesting word play is happening here. So that word translated in our English translations, again, um, it has two uh, meanings or connotations in the original Greek. So it can mean what it is here, again, or another time. Or it can mean from above. So think about it. Jesus is, Jesus is meaning born again, born from above. Nicodemus is hearing born again, born another time, all right? So this is why he says in verse 4, how can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother womb a second time and be born? This is a ridiculous idea. And Jesus answered, verse 5, truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now skip down to verse 14. Just as Moses was lifted up, the snake, lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the man must be, son of man must be lifted up. What's he talking about there? What do you think? The cross. That's right. So that everyone who believes in him may have what? Eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So here it is, guys. You have to be born of water plus spirit equals eternal life, new life. All right? So we see those things converging in that conversation as well. And, of course, this whole conversation is an expansion of what we saw last week in chapter 1, verse 12, where it says, But to all who did receive him, he gave the right to be children of God. Those who believe in his name, not born of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but born of God or born from above. Right. So the same, same concept that's being woven into uh, he's, he's pulling that thread. He's pulling that thread all the way through to this conversation with Nicodemus. Next, we have another scene with John the Baptist. He keeps popping up. He keeps showing up. It's beautiful. I love this chapter. I'm not going to, or this part, I'm not going to focus on much of it. I just want you to look at verse 28. All right, so John the Baptist is speaking, and he says in chapter 3, verse 28, you yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom. But the groom's friend, who stands by and listens for him, rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. All I want to point out there is that John is identifying Jesus as the groom. And I'll tell you why that matters when we get to John chapter 4. Just kind of tuck that tuck that away. All right, last verse I want to point out before we get to chapter 4 is... Um, Uh, Chapter 3, verse 34 says, for the one whom God sent, speaking of Jesus, speaks God's word, words, since he gives the spirit, and how much of the spirit does he give? (laughs) Without measure. It's abundant, it's overflowing, kind of like a wellspring of water, sort of. That's the picture I get, right? Okay, so that's the setup. And those are a lot of different threads that John's going to pull into uh, this beautiful narrative that we have in John chapter 4. So we are now officially starting <laughs> uh, the, 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 main, the main part where, where I really wanted to, wanted to get. All right, chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus and the Samaritan woman. It says, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Though Jesus himself was not baptizing, technically, it was his disciples who were doing it, he left Judea and he went, in, he went to Galilee. So there's a little conflict with the Pharisees, his hour has not yet come, it's not time, so he, he, he kind of gets out of the way. He, uh, let's see, verse 4, he had to travel through Samaria. All right, so let's talk about that for a minute. Now on the surface, the reason he had to travel through Samaria was because it was the shortest route to get to where he wanted to go. Just look at a map, it makes sense. He had to travel through Samaria. Were there other roads? Yes, but that's the most practical answer. Of course, we know, because we've read the story, that he had to go through Samaria because he knew that there was a very important encounter with a woman at a well awaiting him there. Jesus is on a mission to demonstrate that the salvation he brings is not for a privileged few among the Israelites. It's for the whole world. It's for the whole world, which we've already been clued into by John the Baptist and then the conversation with Nicodemus. This is for the whole world, all right? So let's pick up verse 5. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. All right, so we have these references to Jacob. And these references are there to remind the reader that this whole scene, is taking place in the territory once inhabited by the patriarchs. And this is also going to help us understand why Jacob enters the conversation a little bit later. Now, a lot has been written and preached about why this woman came to the well at noon. And honestly, it is anybody's guess. Uh, Was she a social outcast and thus determined to avoid the busy crowds that came in the morning? Perhaps she was. We just don't know. What we do know for sure is that according to Genesis 29.7, Jacob encountered Rachel at a well in the middle of the day. So people go to, I guess, um, dating apps or they go to bars or they go to all kinds of places to, like, find, find a man, find a woman. Back then, wells. Wells were the thing, all right, at least least from the standpoint of very significant matchmaking that took place in the Bible, all right? So Jacob and Rachel met at a well around noon. Now, do you think maybe John wants us to connect those two stories? I have a hunch he does, but stay tuned. We're going to get to that. All right, let's pick up in verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her. I like to think he said, please, please give me a drink. (laughs) Because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. Have a feeling he sent them away. (laughs) Verse 9. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? she asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. All right, so this is where the narrator makes sure we know the racial tension that was going on. Uh, We are explicitly introduced to the racial barrier that makes this meetup extremely surprising, and no one is more surprised than the woman herself. Uh, The Samaritans do share a common ancestry, with the Jews, but that is where the sharing stops. That is all they share. Uh, for many different reasons that I do not have the time to go into here, they were intensely despised by the Jews. The fact that she was a woman made it even more unlikely that someone like Jesus would risk initiating a conversation with her. There would be a lot of stigma around that. Um, and so there is not only a racial barrier at play, there is a gender barrier at play as well. All right. So look at verse 10. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. All right. A couple really important phrases there. First, we have gift gift of God. All right, so this should take us right back to what Jesus said to Nicodemus, right? So there, John 3.16, kind of a popular verse, right? Um, God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his son, all right? And a gift, by definition, is unearned, all right? So it's significant that he uses that phrase. We need to keep that in mind. Now, what is this gift? That he gives. How does how does what metaphor does he use to describe this gift? Well, it's it's living it's living water. I I would give you living water, and so we as the readers would think, hmm, I wonder what that is, and and you got to keep reading, and it's it's gonna fill in. All right, verse eleven. Sir said the woman, "You don't even have a bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water?" This is my favorite, favorite part, I think. I love this question. You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? I mean, how much irony is that loaded with, right? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. All right, so she's puzzled. Uh, Verse 13, and Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water. That word's actually a spring, a spring of water springing up in him for, what's the outcome? Eternal life. Eternal life. So we've got water and we've got life. Well, what about the Spirit? What about the Spirit? Well, turn to John chapter 7. I have an important cross-reference here. John chapter 7, verse 37. As on the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flowing from deep within him. He said this about his spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive his spirit. So there it is. We have water plus spirit leads to eternal life. Look at verse 15. Sir, the woman said to him, Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. Now, I went around my the inside of my house, and I counted eight sink faucets. Plus, I have the refrigerator water, and there's like four or five water spigots on the outside of my house. So I really have no category for having to go to the one clean water source in the middle of the village and 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 then lug that home. But I have a hunch that I would loathe doing that. Right? Um, water is heavy. Humans need a lot of it. And so this was a chore. And so Jesus offering her like this, This idea of, like, never having to go back and draw water at that well would be like someone coming to you and saying, hey, look, I have a way for you never to have to do laundry again. And I would be like, sign me up because it is a chore that is never done. It is never done. I mean, technically, to say you have done the laundry, everyone in your family would have to be naked while you're doing it, right? You are literally undoing your laundry while you're doing your laundry because you're wearing clothes. So, yeah, so that's kind of what's going on here. This is a great, I love this concept. She's like, yes, I want this. Verse 16, he says, go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said. For you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. All right, let's talk about this for a little bit. I, uh, and I'm assuming you have as well, because we've sat under the same kind of preachers, and all of our preachers we've sat under are reading the same commentaries, right? (laughs) Um, We've kind of always been taught that these these verses reveal that she is an immoral woman. She's an immoral woman. And in addition to being an immoral woman, in addition to her blatant sexual immorality, she has the nerve to try to hide it from Jesus by giving him such an incomplete answer. I mean, I've just sat in sermons. This woman is just beat on. By <laughs> she's just a terrible person. I want to propose to you that, that that's not there in the narrative. Like you have to read, you have to you have to read between the lines to infer that. It is only through a modern Western lens that someone would look at this woman and suspect her of wrongdoing. There's some men in this situation that have done some wrong, right? It's kind of like the woman who's called out in John 8, like, where's the guy? He's not there. It's kind of the same same deal. Here's some really important things we need to factor in. Number one, this woman lived in a patriarchal culture where women had limited agency and could not initiate a divorce. Number two, mortality rates were much higher in her context than they are in ours. There's a good chance she had been widowed more than once. And number three, single women in her culture were incredibly vulnerable. Today, in our culture, you can live a vibrant, wonderful, beautiful life as a single woman. Not so in her day. Her current living situation, while certainly not a model of virtue, was probably her only means of survival and had little to do with sex. So the narrative, as it stands, communicates her desperation. We read between the lines and infer immorality. God has a long history of meeting people in desperate places. And what if the questions Jesus asked about her personal life aren't as much about Jesus exposing a woman's sin as they are about Jesus seeing a woman's suffering? And what if we made that our priority too? You know, anytime we do these studies, there's no way we can absorb it all. If if you're like me, you, you walk away with maybe one thing that kind of attaches. Um, this is the one thing that's attached for me, this 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 idea, because I am, um, I don't know, I, I part of just kind of who I am and how I've been taught is like it's just this, this like when you when you're dealing with people, you know, you you got to get to the sin, you got to get to the sin, got to deal with the sin, and we do we do at some point <laughs> have to deal with the sin. But first, we have to see and love the person, the the whole entire person. (laughs) And I think that's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus sees her and knows her and loves her. And so he offers her his very life to satisfy and heal and restore the deep deep wounds that a very hard life has inflicted on her. There's a play on numbers here. John likes those. Kind of mentioned that toward the end last week. He likes, he likes the number seven. <laughs> so there's five husbands plus one man she's currently living with. That makes how many? Six. Jesus comes along, and he is number after all she's endured, the perfect man has come, not to abuse her, not to leave her, but to rescue her and to love her and give her living water that is going to satisfy the very depths of her soul. This is beautiful. This is beautiful. Look at verse 19. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you do say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. All right, we'll stop there. Uh, again, we've all heard the same sermons. We've all been told that she's trying to change the subject. She doesn't want Jesus talking about all of her awful sin that she's done. But the verse, verses never say that. Nor does Jesus redirect the conversation back to her circumstances. And I think what what's going on here, um, as a Samaritan, uh, she would have only considered the first five books of the Bible to be the Scriptures—Matthew, uh, Mark, Luke, Luke, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy—and because of that, she had very little Messianic prophecies. Most of our favorite Messianic prophecies are like in books like Isaiah, you know, further along, right? But she did have one. She didn't have one really big messianic text that she knew as a Samaritan. is Deuteronomy 18, 18. And that verse says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything. So I personally don't think she's changing the subject. I think a little seed of faith is starting to take root and grow. I think she's starting to connect some dots. Someone walks up to you, a perfect stranger, and knows some details about your life. What is your first conclusion? Oh, my word, this is a prophet. And then she's like, oh, well, there's a really important prophecy about a prophet that I know. And and so then it leads into, well, there's this big theological elephant in the room, and it's like this whole big debate about where the temple is supposed to be. And so she starts to talk about that. I think what I see is just a very natural flow of thought. I don't think she's trying to run from any questions or run from any, I don't think she has anything to hide. I think she had a hard life. And and Jesus knew something about it. And, And so she's continuing to connect dots and engage him in conversation. Verse 21. Jesus told her, believe me, woman. An hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and for Jesus, his hour was always um, it's located kind of cross resurrection, but especially his ascension and the sending of the Spirit right? So all that's kind of encompassed in the, the hour. So, so it's coming, and it's, it's, it's here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So what he's saying there, essentially, and there's, oh my goodness, so much we could say about that, but he's saying that there's coming a day really soon where it's not going to matter where the temple is. And why is it no longer going to matter where the physical temple is located? Jesus is the temple. We already know this, don't we? We, we, It was kind of inferred in chapter 1, verse 14, where the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And then um, we have... The explicit statement in John chapter 2 where Jesus says, tear this down and three days I'll build it up again. He's talking about his body. So we're prepared for this conversation. I don't think she was. We are as the reader. Now, how in the world do do you worship in a person? Well, through the indwelling spirit as you live out his truth. That's why all this, this whole idea about worshiping in spirit and in truth is so important. Because we're no longer going to a building. We're not, no longer doing all these rituals. and we're like, it's, it's Worshiping in a person requires the indwelling spirit and living out the truth of that person. And she's catching on to the gravity of what he's saying. Because look at her response in verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Again, she's quoting that Deuteronomy 18.18. He's going to tell us everything. And Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am. I am. Our English translations add the he. I am. Verse 27 Just then, his disciples arrived, and they were amazed. Not that he was talking with a Samaritan. They were probably amazed about that, too. But mostly that he was talking with a woman, and yet no one said, what do you want, or why are you talking to her? Now, we don't know. I am now totally reading between the lines. I think the reason why, I think somebody was about to say something, and like Peter was like, no, don't do it, don't ask. We're going to get another lecture on Genesis 1 where... We already know men and women are both made in the image of God, and they were both called to rule and subdue the earth, and I do not want to hear that lecture again. I think that's why they were like, nobody ask, nobody say anything. That's just a hunch. All right, let's see, verse 28. The woman left her water jar. I think there's some symbolism there. She left it. She went into the town and she told the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Again, she's quoting, she's just quoting that Deuteronomy 18, 18 passage. It just echoes through everything she says. Could this be the Messiah? And they left the town and made their way to him. There's a beautiful passage about the harvest and all that. We're going to skip over that. I want you to go to verse 39. Now the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said, and she testified, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, since we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is. The Savior of the world. Those last few words, that title that they give Jesus, that he is the Savior of the world, that is the entire point of this chapter. Racial, gender, socioeconomic, and religious barriers could not keep Jesus away because the gift that he offers is for everybody it's for everybody let me tell you if salvation could be earned it would privilege certain people certain people are just better at earning it's a certain type of people so if salvation could be earned it would privilege certain people but it can't and it doesn't because the grace of God is radically egalitarian And that is very, very, very good news, especially for the marginalized, right? There is a final section on your listening guide. It is called Biblical Well-Meeting Pattern. I told you there's some really important hookups that happen at wells in the Old Testament, all right? Three significant well-meeting scenes. We have Isaac and Rebekah, happens in Genesis 24, Jacob and Rachel, and this is all in your listening guide, you guys, so you don't have to write this down. Jacob and Rachel is in Genesis 29, and then Moses and Zipporah is in Exodus 2, 15 through 21. You'll notice all of these are prominent leaders of Israel, all right? What's interesting is if you read these, and we're not going to read any of these, uh, but they all contain the same elements in the order listed. And I forgot to bring a listening guide. Can somebody, got an extra one there on that table? Can you bring me one? Because I don't have these memorized. I should, but I don't. Thank you so, so much. All right, so these are the elements. Somebody journeys to a foreign place. All right. Um, A man encounters a woman at a well. And then someone draws water from the well. Then a woman hurries home. Brings news of the visitor. After that, there's a scene of hospitality where the visitor stays with the woman's family. There's always a mention of food, mention of a meal. Um, And then there's the joining. The two parties are joined as one. And it doesn't matter what well scene you're looking at, every well scene in the Old Testament has these, this follows this pattern. Guess what else follows this pattern? John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And, uh, again, we're not going to walk through it. I've put all the references there next to um, the element of the pattern so you can go back and really um, geek out on that if if you want to. Um, Do you think that John meant to do this, arrange this narrative with the same well-meaning pattern? Heck, yes, he meant to do it. It's John. Of course he did. Of course he did. And the fact that Jesus is called a groom. Toward the end of chapter three, he's putting the cookies on the bottom shelf, you guys. He's like, ding, 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 clue into this, clue into this. It's no accident. That was a setup for us to, 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 to have our radar tuned to what's going on here. Now, the fascinating thing about this well meeting, all right, what makes it different than any of the others, the big twist, and, and what I really think John wants the reader to, to struggle with. I I think he wants to create this sense of like, almost like an ickiness, a dissonance. I don't know, I'm not a big Bachelor, Bachelorette fan, a lot of friends that watch him. Um, But, you know, you hear people talk about him, and people are like, I cannot believe he picked her, right? People are always like, oh, I can't believe, you know, you get to the end, and you like, you have your favorite, and then you, never like the other girl at all, right? You're either, you're all in for this one and you can't stand that. And then, so there, there's like a, di- a dissonance. And I think that's the, kind of the feeling that John's wanting to generate here, like wrong girl. There is no way this woman or her people are fit to be Jesus's bride. And yet that is exactly who he pursues. exactly who he pursues he had to go through Samaria why because he really is the savior not just of Israel but of the entire world the entire world isn't that just beautiful I'd I'd never seen that before ever and and just kind of came across that this week in my studies and I thought man like, so I told you last week, I mean, the book of John, like, you can get a lot out of it just doing the snorkel thing, but, but you put on that scuba gear, you just go as deep as you want. You, there's, you will never find the bottom. You will never find the bottom. And I just think that is a beautiful, beautiful part of what John has woven in to this narrative. Um, chapter 4 ends with Jesus back in Cana where he performs his second sign. So we started in Cana with the wedding. And the first sign, we end this section in Cana, so we have two nice little bookends um, cluing the reader in to the fact that there's a, a particular section of the gospel that is now concluded, and we're moving into another, another section. So we are going to do chapters 5 and 6 next week. So if you didn't buy a workbook, that's fine. Um, just read and reread and reread and reread chapters 5 and 6. Are there any questions about chapters 1 through 4? I close any questions alright well if you think of any you let me know I'm always hanging out you can always let me know and if you have the questions somebody else probably does too So, alright let me close this in prayer Father I thank you so much for your word um, it has been rich and sweet and overwhelming and um, just so gorgeous so so beautiful I thank you um, I thank you that, that grace is for everyone, the gospel is for everyone, salvation is for everyone. And Lord, I thank you that you've pursued me and you've pursued the women in this room. And what a beautiful, beautiful um, thing that we can know that you see us and you see our suffering and you, you see our wounds and you see our, the hard places in our lives and you see our sin, and and yet you still lean in, and you still pursue, and you still love, and you still call us to yourself. And so, God, I just thank you for this picture of grace, for these portraits of our Savior, and I pray that they would serve to ignite a deeper affection and a deeper longing to walk in obedience, uh, to to worship in spirit and in truth, this one who we claim to follow and to love and who we have committed our lives to, uh, may we walk worthy of this beautiful, beautiful Savior. In Jesus' name, Amen. All right. <laughs> oh, I don't have any like questions, questions for you, but we have a few minutes. Um, just I would go around and say, what did, what's what stood out to you? Like, what was your big, what was your takeaway? Right. So we all have different things. Um, You could also share, like, how has Jesus proven to be this sufficient, all-sufficient waters of life in in your own life? So either one of those will get you through the time for sure.